Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Steele, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, my name is James B. Steele, Jim Steele, to friends and family and, and close associates, uh, along with another uh, author, uh, Don Barlett. The two of us have been uh, journalists for more than half a century, uh, authors of nine books. And the first book we wrote uh, was a full-scale biography of Howard Hughes uh, back in the late 1970s. And the interesting thing about that is the book has remained in print ever since then. And I would like to say because of our brilliant writing and all that, but the fact of the matter is it's made, remained in print because Hughes is a subject of such enduring interest. And younger generations of people are discovering this fellow, even though he's been dead now for several decades, because a lot of the lessons out of his life, who he was, what drove him, uh, how he employed his fortune, all of those things are subject of intense interest to this day because they kind of go to the heart of America. He was kind of an individualist of the highest order, uh, had a lot of money. Uh, but unlike some very rich people, he didn't sit on the money. He put it to work in various fields. Um, some of it was entertainment. Uh, some of it was technology, aviation, the defense industry. Uh, some of it was just classic business. But all of those things were what drove him and, and made him fascinating. Uh, what's such a contrast with him was how public he was in his youth as a producer of some of the most famous films in Hollywood, uh, as an aviator, both as a pilot and as a designer and contributor to airplanes. Uh, he set cross-country records in aviation went on a round-the-world flight in the late, late 1930s that was a triumph of science and technology, uh, as well as personal boldness. Uh, so all of these things contributed to his early image. But then because of some, tragically, um, um, some difficulties, obsessive-compulsive disorders, he began to retreat more and more from the real world. So you have wrapped up in Hughes all of these contrasts and these triumphs and also some significant personal failures because of what turned out to be a kind of a tragic flaw in his case. Uh, all of those things make the man a subject of enduring interest. And uh, I think that's why people will always be fascinated by it. Before you did a deep dive into his life and you wrote your book, I mean, what did you know about Hughes? Did you just know the eccentric stuff? Like, that's all I first came across, which honestly, when you dive into the meat of who he was as a person, you start going, oh, I would point so many people towards other areas of his life that were just as much fascinating as the eccentric stuff. Well, that's, that's really a good point you make, because I think probably the eccentric stuff was the stuff that got the most publicity at the time. Uh, Don and I wrote our, our, our book on Hughes. Uh, and at the time, even then, his earlier aviation uh, achievements weren't so well known. A lot of that generation didn't remember them. Older generations did, of course, because he was so famous. But what kind of happened with Hughes is that early on, he'd achieved such amazing triumphs in both movies and aviation and have kind of become a public figure that that carried over even to the point that he wasn't public anymore, which is the time Don and I began doing our work on him. And I think what attracted us to him in the beginning was, you know, who is this guy? Who is this person who is this 
public figure in the 1920s, 1930s, even into the 1940s, who then suddenly retreats from the world. And anybody who said, who came up to me and said, well, I met Howard Hughes in the 50s and early 60s, he knew right away they were lying because nobody met him then. He was completely sealed off from the world. So what sparked us was, what, what were these earlier achievements? What was his role in these things? What motivated him? Um, and then later, what, what made him withdraw? And how did he run this incredible empire uh, in, in, in this fashion? Because he, you think of most corporate czars, people of that magnitude, you think of them getting orders here and there, and sort of very visible kinds of people running big operations. He was, was the reverse. You never saw him in, the, in his last 20 years. Uh, almost nobody saw him. But yet here was this massive organization that he ran from, all the way from Las Vegas to the Hughes Tool Company in, in, um, in Houston, to a lesser extent, Hughes Aircraft Company, the technology and uh, uh, space company based in outside, based in LA. So all of these things fascinate us. What drove him? Uh, what's behind this? Why did he retreat? What's his legacy? And why is he such an enduring, uh, why, did, why, did, why does the American public have such enduring interest in him? And um, is it justified? So all of those things. And that's the way, as a journalist, I've begun many, many projects over the years. It's not with a specific um, set of beliefs about what is there. I start with questions. Oh, why is this? Why is this man so interesting? What did he achieve? What's the hallmark of that success? How will he go down in history? Uh, what made him retreat from the world, and why did he do that? So all of those things, kind of filtered in to drive our initial interest in, in Hughes. And, and to tell you the truth, in the beginning, I was only vaguely aware of the magnitude of his aviation achievements. I mean, I sort of knew them generally in the same way probably a lot of young people know of somebody like John Glenn who uh, and, and Neil Armstrong who, went, who landed on the moon. They may not specifically know the details. They just know that that's a famous name. And that's kind of the way I was with Hughes. So that's what the book was just, the research was just such an exploration to find out who this guy is, what drove him, and uh, why that why his legacy will be lasting. Well, if we talk about who he was, can we examine maybe his early years to get a better understanding of how he might have, I mean, he's 19 years old, he's got no parents, and he's basically a billionaire or millionaire. So it's like, I mean, what would we do in that position? And everything that you can plot him doing was like, yeah, that's exactly what I would do if I was a kid and I had a bunch of money. That's, that's, that is a great question because, and it's one that preoccupied us a lot because uh, Hughes's mother and father died within really a year, year and a half of each other, leaving him basically orphaned at 19. And the owner of the Hughes Tool Company in Houston, Texas, the Hughes Tool Company was then becoming the single greatest uh, company in the oil industry that wasn't the oil company itself. Uh, Howard's father had helped invent a drill bit that went through uh, hard rock oil reservoirs that absolutely led to the explosion of the oil industry in the US and really around the world for that matter. And so when he died, Howard was left as the majority owner 
of the tool company along with his uncle and his grandparents. Uh, up to that time, and I actually talked to people who knew Howard when he was a kid, grew up with him there in Houston, knew all about him, knew his interest. There was no indication at all up until the age 19 uh, that he had the kind of backbone, that he had this kind of streak of independence that he exhibited once his parents had both died. Right away, he insisted on buying out his uncle and his grandparents, other family members. Um, it was a tremendous family fight. They were very unhappy with it. You're 19 years old, Howard. You don't know anything about the world yet. How can you succeed to running this huge company without some of us older folks standing by and over your shoulder. I mean, there were genuine family issues there, I think. I don't think they were trying to usurp his legacy or his fortune or anything like that. But Howard was an independent sort, and we didn't know this until both parents died. And he then succeeded to succeed in buying out his, all his relatives and getting sole control of the tool company. And he did this partly because his father had told him, he said, if you can avoid it, son, never have a partner. Go it alone. Don't have anybody interfering with, with what you do. So he seems to have taken that to heart and achieved that right away. The interesting thing about the tool company, though, that was the whole basis of his fortune. It was such a, a profitable operation. It just churned out money year after year after year. Uh, and generally speaking, Howard kind of left that alone. Over time, he would be known as a meddler in his movies, in the Hughes Aircraft Company, and later on in Las Vegas. Micromanaged a lot. Micro, my, he was a micromanager of the highest order, in addition to having many other uh, good qualities and management qualities. But on that point, he was a micromanager. But the tool company, he left that alone, basically. He made sure it had good leadership. And I think he kind of considered that a monument to his father. He revered his father, and he always wanted to at least, I think, achieve what his father had done. But in, in keeping with that, he was happy to accept the profits of the tool company, but didn't want, um, but did not meddle with it, and used that money to finance his own ventures to make a name for himself. And the irony of all that is that while he probably went to his death revering his father as achieving things he never could, uh, Howard went way beyond his father in terms of achievements in a whole range of fields. Uh, but that was how powerful that influence was, and that's what led him to that. Uh, he, Once he succeeded the tool company, though, and he almost immediately left Houston. Uh, he got married to a very uh, uh, attractive socialite there in Houston. The two of them went west to Hollywood. He spent some time in Hollywood with his father, and his uncle was a famous writer, Rupert Hughes, and also a screenwriter. So they had an entree to this burgeoning field of movies. And Howard right away became enamored of these and began producing movies. Now, the first movie he produced won an Academy Award, which is only the second year of the awards. Uh, his third movie was his most famous movie called Hell's Angels which was this, I don't know, uh, I, any of your, uh, anybody paying attention to this program, if you've not seen Hell's Angels, you really need to see Hell's Angels. He reshot the whole thing just to add sound to it. 
<laughs> That's right. I mean, you got to watch it, even if it's no, an that, old that movie. Money was no object with Howard. I mean, really, he made a certain amount of money, but he spent a lot of money. And the, the artistic achievement was the goal of Hell's Angels. And what happened was when they began filming it, it was still the silent era. And the woman playing the lead role was a Scandinavian woman with a very thick Scandinavian accent. So when the talkies came in, they realized she couldn't be the, the actress for an American film on something like this. So they replaced her. Um, but the aerial sequences alone in Hell's Angels are absolutely astonishing. They cost a fortune. Uh, my memory is two or three stunt pilots died in the filming of it because so many of these incidents were quite dangerous. Uh, but it was a spectacular piece of work. And and those scenes I even hold up to this day. I mean, I watch that movie myself every once in a while just, just to remind myself what an incredible achievement it was. So, but Howard, that was the first movie where he directly played a role in the entire production. Uh, when it was done, he also showed another thing that would be true of him throughout his life. He was an ex exceptional promoter. And once the movie was done, he basically uh, ended up walling off uh, parts of Hollywood Boulevard. The searchlights were going up all around Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is where the, uh, the preview of Hell's Angels was. Became an incredible media sensation. And this is also a key to Howard's personality. In those days, while he was, excuse me, a public figure, he was also somewhat shy, but he understood the kind of the way into Americans' appreciation of things and understanding of things were these dramatic public relations events. And he was a PR genius, really. Oh, and, I, he could uh, examine uh, the outlaw for that one, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think exactly. what you just I said mean, about him being shy confirms what Jane Russell said in an interview where she said that, I think I scared Howard. Um, he seemed like a little frightened kid when I would talk and speak and i realized that you know i can make i can make him do whatever i wanted basically right right howard despite his image of uh that some people pushed of his of a great ladies man i think he was actually very shy around a lot of women especially very attractive women uh but that was part of his general personality but he wanted he was never shied away from creating the image and contributing to the image that he was a big ladies man and the most important thing to him was that image, not exactly what he was doing. Uh, but Hell's Angels set the tone for him uh, really creating incredible campaigns to highlight um, both his movies and, and also uh, some of his aviation things as well. Can I ask about the Conqueror film? No, about which one? The Conqueror with John Wayne. Um. I'm not deeply familiar with that particular one. Uh, Howard Hughes made it, but it was by the nuclear testing area. And oh, I'm speculated sorry. that they got 93 out of the 200. And he bought the films, which is interesting to me because it seemed like he, everyone says, oh, he must have been crazy. He was watching them on repeat and he bought every copy. I go, that's someone that's in pain. Um especially the fact that you produced a movie and you might have gotten a lot of people injured or killed or and I, he just watched it on repeat i was like that's someone who's suffering he uh and also he 
later in life, he, this was the kind of the, unfortunately the pattern he was into would be repeating. He'd sometimes watch the same movie multiple times a day. Ice Station Zebra. Ice <laughs> Station Zebra was, <laughs> and uh, this was just you know what he was into. The interesting thing he raised also about the Conqueror was that uh, he was, I think, you can say very safely, he was way ahead of the public and even some of the scientific community in terms of the dangers of radiation and atomic testing. Now, you may say that this stemmed from his concern about germs and contamination, which is true, but the fact of the matter is he was absolutely right. When he was uh, sort of campaigning from Las Vegas against those tests, everybody, a lot of people thought, well, he's just kind of a weird eccentric genius and he can say these kinds of things. But it stemmed from some real concerns and a lot of it may well have arisen from, from the filming there of The Conqueror. Uh, and he was close to that and he knew, based on his own knowledge of scientific stuff, what a potential danger of radiation could be. So it's typical the kinds of things that maybe in his lifetime people thought he was a little wacky about. But in fact, you could argue he was right on. And it's a shame more of the country at the time didn't pay attention to that. What do you think his bi biggest reputational start was? Would you say it was Hollywood or would you say it was his pilot experience? It, it was Hollywood. Uh, and out of, out of Hollywood evolved uh, the aviation work. I think... Uh, He'd always been interested in planes, and I think the Hell's Angels experience got him further going into aviation. It's it's fun to go back to that time. Let's just all go back mentally to the 1920s, which is what, what we're talking about here, 20s and 30s. The two most dramatic fields at the time were Hollywood movies and aviation. I mean, Lindbergh's flight was in the mid-20s, uh, right before Hell's Angels. So Howard was very, very interested in planes. That was why filming of those great sequences in Hell's Angels were so dramatic, so amazing. And that's what spurred him into thinking about uh, aviation, experimenting with that. His first great one was called the H-1 Racer. Uh, and some of the things you see with Howard there were both the source of his kind of genius and drive but also the seeds of what would be um, some small and big disasters. The H-1 was this very, very fast, small plane that he and his engineers developed at Hughes Aircraft Company, which is right outside of Culver City um, there in Los Angeles, very close to today's Los Angeles International Airport. And the first test flight of that, which he did in Orange County, he went longer than he was supposed to go. And what happened? The plane ran out of fuel. And he crashed in a beet field. Uh, was not injured much, and the plane wasn't injured much, but he was lucky. But it was sort of typical of what you might see with Hughes over the years. He was constantly pushing the envelope. Uh, both an admirable thing, but also sometimes a kind of reckless thing, which we can talk about his later accident on that if you want. But he was fascinated by speed and also by the technology of planes. I mean, planes were really new in the 20s. I mean, I can't remember the exact year of the Wright Brothers. What is it, 1903 or four? I, anyway, I mean, they're really new. 
people are just trying to figure out ways to make them go faster. So flush rivets was one of his big things. There was a wonderful scene in The Aviator uh, where he sent them back to work on some rivets on the fuselage of the H-1. And that was typical of him. He was very precise and very specific on things like that. That racer uh, then led him to think about bigger fish. So in, I think, 1936, um, I guess it was, he did one transcontinental flight. And then the next year, he did another one. The one flight, he lost instrument control right after he took off. And he flew the next, I think, seven and a half to eight hours from L.A. to Newark Airport outside of New York, totally guided by the stars. And fortunately, it was a clear night across the country. So he could kind of pick up cities and lights and so forth. Um, set a new record for cross-country flights on that. Uh, when he emerged from that, uh, what was so interesting about Hughes on both that flight and others, he he really was a very self-effacing guy rather than beating his chest like, look what I did. He portrayed this as a, as a victory for technology. Look what we can now do. And look what this magnificent airplane can achieve because of what we, what we built here. Not what I, a guy flying without instruments and, and gutsy as hell, can do. I mean, that's the thing I think that's also part of the appeal of Hughes. He's not one of these rich guys who's just pounding on his chest saying, look at me. Look what we're doing here. A lot of these things appeared to be moving the industries he was involved in, whether they were movies or aviation, forward, doing uh, pattern-breaking uh, projects as such. So, and that set the case. And, and, and the transcontinental flight set the stage for his famous 1938 flight around the world. Um, he... He had a crew of, I guess, six or seven on that flight. It was a Lockheed-built plane. Uh, flew originally from uh, New York around the world and coming back to New York. Uh, and, and the number of what was astonishing about that flight was the amount of energy he put in to the technology in the plane, the gauges, the instruments, uh, all of those things that would navigate certain kinds of weather conditions, so forth. Uh, very, very dramatic achievement. Uh, and he was worthy of the fame that he got after that. Got a ticker tape parade in New York, mayor of New York, uh, all kinds of officialdom of that sort. Uh, again, very, very self-effacing. Gave credit to his crew, gave credit to the people back in L.A. who built the plane and, and uh, adopted it. He had almost a lifelong relationship with Lockheed Aircraft, um, partly because of that plane and then later commercial planes when he when he headed TWA. So anyway, he, his, his whole um, approach seemed to be not to make himself famous, but to push these things forward. But I think there was also a piece of it that uh, was very happy about that fame, even though he was at that root, a very, very shy kind of guy. 
when when do you think there was a turning point in his life like when did it started to go downhill and when i say that i mean specifically i like to point at the xf11 crash uh mostly because it was such a bad accident i think that's when you really start seeing his health and his mental well-being kind of start deteriorating from there and within the next years or so you start seeing him go to vegas and we can get into the reclusiveness aspect of things but that the xf11 is a is a pivotal point um you can see some the seeds of it but slightly before that i think the um building the xf11 and then also the hercules the so-called spruce goose who's doing these two projects at the same time during world war ii the strain on both of those was enormous and he suffered his first mental breakdown at the end of World War II, 1944, where he just disappeared for months while both the work work was going on on both of those planes at Hughes Aircraft Company. Uh, then later reemerged, got himself kind of together. But it even, in some ways, the problems even go back before that. Uh, you can see from an early age, he was very concerned about germs and contamination. I mean, this was the subject of a lot of funny stories from time to time and stories by somebody who once worked for him. I caught flies for Howard Hughes and stuff like that. But it was a genuine fear he had. And one of the most astonishing things that we came across. Uh, when you do, if I can digress on this, when you're doing research on somebody like this or, or a project of this size, you check all major archives. I'll give you an example, the Library of Congress. You just go to the Library of Congress. You can do it all online now, but in those days you actually had to go there. And you look up somebody's name, a famous name, and you see all the names, all the collections in the Library of Congress where his name comes up. Long list of things. Well, one of these was a fellow who founded the Boy Scouts and had run a little camp in, in eastern Pennsylvania in the 19-teens. Well, Howard's mother, when they were living in, and she was alive and his father was alive, sent him to this camp when he was a young boy. And the letters from the mother to the scoutmaster about take good care of Howard. If he, if he coughs, let me know. Make sure he's not near anybody else who's sick. I mean, very, very obsessive concerns about Howard's health. Now, all mothers are concerned about their children, or should be. But this really was truly over the top. And you can argue that from an early age, Howard became aware of the fear of things that could affect his health or whatever. So there was a certain obsessive compulsiveness about him early on. Uh, and you see little bits of this here and there over the years, but it's not until that stress of the 40s that, that this it starts to really manifest itself. Then with the famous XF-11 crash, which he was very lucky to survive, uh, he became addicted to um, narcotics uh, in one form or another because of the pain. Uh, doesn't seem to be any doubt about that. And from that time on, he's really starting to retreat from public. He is in public in the in the late 40s. He, he goes to the famous Senate hearings after all this has happened to him, after he's almost killed. And he gives this performance worthy of an Academy Award. I don't know if, if, you or, if you've ever seen any of those films of that uh, testimony. 
And, and DiCaprio brings it up pretty well in the movie, but the actual film itself is pretty amazing. I mean, you have never thought for one minute this guy wasn't anything other than a public figure running around every day with masses of people. But in fact, he was already quite reclusive. But he steeled himself up to make the appearance on this to defend his reputation, but mainly to defend the work he'd done on these two aircraft, both the Hercules and the XF-11, the, the fighter plane. Uh, but after that, he slips back into this life of uh, reclusiveness. And all through the 50s, you see him here and there, and some of the people who work for him see him here and there. But he's gradually slipping more and more into that role. So by the late 50s, he's just not going out at all. He's living in the Beverly Hills Hotel. He marries Jean Peters shortly thereafter, and she lives in another bungalow in the Beverly Hills Hotel. They were married 12 or 13 years. They lived together nine months during that period. So it's like, you know, he's not kind of a normal person by this time as he gets more and more into that. It doesn't match the womanizer that a lot of people think of. No, and and we we paid very close attention to that. I mean, he clearly did have um, an affair with Catherine Hepburn and with a lot of a, number, a few other starlets in Hollywood, but they're much more uh, limited in scope than a lot of the reputation would have him. But he he always felt, and he a lot of his press agents fed all kinds of things with, about rumors about his association with this girl and that girl, that woman, that one. Most of that stuff was greatly exaggerated, but that worked to build up his own image, his own reputation, and to co contribute a little bit of the mystique about the man. But anyway, all through the fifties, he's this is this is going on with him. He's slipping more and more into this reclusive mode. And by the late 50s, around 1960, I mean, he's really a com complete recluse at that time. I mean, most of the people in his empire have never never seen him again, never meet him again. And in the late 50s, the, he still would see some of them. I mean, one of the people I remember interviewing was his chief engineer at Transworld Airlines, TWA, when they were trying to buy jet airplanes. And uh, he told me of a scene where uh, Howard wanted to meet with him in L.A. So this engineer was in Kansas City, which was TWA's home at the time. So he flew out there and Howard said, I, I've got a place for us. And it was some kind of a, I think, high school or some kind of a big auditorium like this, where Howard had set up a table right in the center of it. And he said, we can talk here and nobody can overhear us. He was absolutely obsessed about being overheard and about being wiretapped and things of that sort. Part of that, again, that reclusiveness, don't, don't let any of our secrets out. Um, so all of that's gradually gripping him more and more as time goes on. And the point the point we made in the book, we, by the way, we, Don and I spent a lot of time trying to understand the nature of his mental illness, not for its, uh, uh, what should we say, uh, dramatic or uh, uh, spectacular, interesting areas or, or bizarre things, not for its bizarreness, but understand how mental illness does develop and what you can do about it. We talked to a lot of psychologists about this over time. 
And the sad thing about Howard during that period, and this again all stretched back to his youth when he had just staked out his independence. I don't need anyone. I don't even need, really need a wife. I don't need family. I'm my own boss. I can hire the people around me I need. Uh, in the late 50s, when he was starting to further deteriorate, he needed somebody to come up to him and say, look, Howard, you know, this, this is a little crazy. Uh, let's talk about this. And you should talk to somebody about this and try to work your way through these obsessive compulsive uh, instincts that you have. But uh, he really didn't have close friends. And there were really no family members. That he had employees, but he didn't have the kinds of people that maybe the, the average person would have. Uh, Mayhew is probably as close as even though they'd never met in 20 years. Oh, no, Mayhew. Yeah, they, ne they never met in 20 years, but that was probably his closest friend, at least what Howard thought. You mean who? Robert Mayhew. Mayhew, Mayhew, yeah, yeah. exactly. And who ran Las Vegas for him until, uh, uh, right. And and that's that stunned people after Howard died because they always figured he had access to him every which way. The only people around Howard in his last 15, 20 years were the handful of about six personal aides who waited on him in whatever hotel suite he happened to be in at the time. And then he used a very interesting operation in West Hollywood, which dated back to the 20s, uh, which he called Operations, which had housed a lot of his old films and um, other memorabilia from that, that that time in his life. Operations had almost, think of a police department's control booth where a bunch of phones are there and people are manning it. If I was a corporate executive, even though I considered myself pivotal to Howard's operation, I'd have to call Operation and say, will you tell Mr. Hughes I need to talk to him about we've got a problem here at the tool company or Hughes Aircraft or wherever it was. And then operations would then call Howard and say, such and such is called and says he needs to talk to you. And Howard could say, well, tell him I'll call him in two days or I'll call him tomorrow or blah, 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 whatever it was. Nobody had direct access other than those handful of people who ran operations. And that was true the last 15, almost the last 15 to 20 years of his life. Um, showing how cut off he was. I mean, it's kind of amazing how well a lot of it did work, given the fact he really wasn't making decisions on a daily basis with a lot of these things. Can I ask about his mental health issues and what you were able to pinpoint down onto maybe, it's, it's obviously multifactorial, but you ever heard that he got syphilis at some point and then it was before the XF-11 crash? I don't know if you, under, if you looked into that or if you believe that theory. I did not hear that. Because uh, if you not... take Oxycontins after his XF-11 crash, that interferes with the medication you take for syphilis. So if you think of Al Capone slowly going insane over that ex period of time, he had syphilis and left it untreated. That could be a possibility with Howard Hughes. I mean, that's if you believe he got syphilis or not. I, you know, I never heard that. Uh, and I, I guess when we looked at his mental uh, progression over time, Ultimately, it seemed logical to us. Early on, he has this fear of germs and contamination. Uh, the thing with the mother and the aviator is very, I, I mean, in a way, kind of right out of our book in terms of what we talked about as youth and his mother. Not the scene, but, but the concept. 
And this develops over time. He's, he's very careful around people. And what happens with an obsessive compulsive disorder, it tends to get worse over time. So even if he hadn't had the XF11 crash, and more likely some aspect of this would have happened. But then when you add to that, you know, the narcotics and the painkillers and all those things, you know, that further isolates you from the world. And one of the most uh, dramatic things we came across as part of the court filings was that Hughes had this handful of guys around him. Uh, most of them from the Mormon church, not all of them, but most of them had all been hired by one fellow from the church who trusted these guys. And they were amazing in terms of how they kept the, they kept the faith. They were, they kept everything secret. They Forsyth? Uh, John, John Holmes was, was one of them. Okay. Uh, LeVar, there were about Forsyth. I don't remember that name in terms of the five or six around him. Uh, George Franken was another, um, I could pull a book out here and, and get the other names. That, but there were like five or six of them about the last 10 to 15 years who were the, the real pivotal ones. And, you know, they, they kept that quiet, but here's what happened. Hughes in his last 15 to 20 years was difficult uh, because who's going to call him on anything? And sometimes he would ask for certain things and they would provide it. And then he would say, well, why didn't you give me this? And they said, well, Mr. Hughes, we did this uh, two hours ago. No, you didn't. And some of this might have been derangement from the drugs, other kinds of things. So you know what they started doing? They started drafting memos basically to themselves. So there was this whole thing called the operations manual. It was about this thick, how to open a can of fruit, how to walk in the room where Mr. Hughes is, is in there, uh, how to go pick up food for him and delivering food to him, how to approach him in his chair. I mean, it was the height of obsessive compulsive uh, behavior. But they were codifying this for their own protection to show that, yes, we're doing this the right way so that, so that we can. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it wasn't syphilis because I, I just don't know. But the general pattern is one that I think carries through almost from his youth. Par paradoxical germophobia is what he had. Yeah, and, and an obsessive compulsive uh, disorder. Uh, and it just advances through life, greatly exacerbated, no doubt, by the coding and the accident, uh, which he was very likely to survive. How difficult was it for you to understand his mental health? Because, like, how much do you understand his myth and might be part of the story of Hughes? Like the urine jar things, I, I tend to think that could be possible, but then the blacking out of the windows of the whole top two floors. I forgot who has the best statement about Howard Hughes, but somebody always, he's, I'll have to remember the name and send it to you after, but his description was, I always knew when Howard Hughes was in Las Vegas because the radio station that he owned would be playing ice station zebra on repeat. And I just, I got to chuckle to myself about right. that. Right. And, and uh, you really, you really ask a really good question though, because uh well, there were a lot of other parts of it that you could sort of piece together and see what happened and see the progression or whatever, see what his role was in aviation. Um, 
we were very, very intrigued by the mental uh, issue. In fact, when we began, we thought most of the stories were probably terrible exaggerations. That he really wasn't, you know, doing these kinds of things. Uh, sadly, by the time we got through with our research, we realized there were very few exaggerations. He was really, really uh, quite disturbed by the end of his life, uh, by the last, you know, maybe 10, 12, 15 years there. Um, so trying to understand that was very important. And I remember we consulted a number of psychologists about, you know, what what's going on here. And every, the ones we consulted pretty much agreed it seemed like a classic obsessive compulsive disorder. What was different about Hughes, though, this is, and this is what made him so unique mentally. I mean, we postulated this in our book based on all of these people we talked to, was that most people who are, by the end of their life, as mentally injured, impaired as he was, are really not able to conduct a rational conversation at all. But Hughes, just several years before his death, has the famous radio interview about the Clifford Irving book, where he's in the Bahamas and it's teamed up with about five or six journalists. Do you believe it was him? Pardon me? you believe it was him? The voice is identical. I do too. I just, I've heard some people say that they don't necessarily believe it was him. And I'm like, I I don't know. Oh, I think it was him. Uh, I mean, it's just my opinion. I mean, the voice sounds to me identical to uh, the voice of the Senate hearing. I mean, that's the one we. And it's in Howard Hughes style. He calls by telephone, or yeah, yeah, and and uh, and he's kind of reckless in it. He has that comment about Mayu. He stole me blind, which then led to this incredible bit of litigation, uh, which produced a lot for our book, by the way, in terms of documents produced and so forth. But anyway, so I, I think it was him. But what was it? And that's what was so interesting about his mental situation. Most people who are that far gone are not able to summon up a personality, even just for a short time, as he did in that conference, that, that radio conference, uh, radio or television, tele, or telephone interview, that appears to be a completely rational, sane man. He's joking. He said, yes, I've heard those stories about my fingernails. Well, how can I sign anything with all that? In fact, his fingernails were long. This was, there's just more and more, there's plenty of evidence of that. Do you believe that the photo of him with tissue boxes on his feet, is that real? Um, my memory is he did do that from time to time. I mean, my my, my main memory from uh, some of the depositions, some of the aides gave afterward. And you remember after he died, there were there were some criminal investigations because of his physical condition. He was 6'3 and weighed 94 pounds. He had multiple needles broken off in one of his arms uh, from some of these injections that he was giving himself or being given. Anyway, um, so just about anything could have been could have been possible. And uh, they Many of them explained what his daily routine would be, which would be basically not to go without clothes. Uh, his last few years, he's in a hospital bed the whole time, taking uppers and downers and watching the movies. And the reason they kept they kept logs by the, almost by the minute of what he was doing. And the reason they did that was the same reason they did all these other memos, 
is because he would say, I, why didn't you give me my pill? And they would say, well, look here. I just wrote it down. I gave you a pill. Give me another one. Anyway, so they, that's why these, watch this movie, took this, uh, they call them blue bombers, uh, you know, did this other thing, enema, whatever it was. They documented everything. So that's the irony of this whole thing. As reclusive as he was in his last few years, we had this incredible almost minute-by-minute minute record out of these daily logs, what he was up to. So his mental condition, back to your question, so his mental condition is extremely fascinating because most of the people we talked to said, anybody who's doing this many you know, kind of crazy things, they're not able to have a rational conversation like he did in that interview with the journalists about the Clifford Irving book, the phony book. Uh, even after that, when he was in, uh, I think, Nicaragua, when he was selling his tool company, he had a meeting with two um, financiers you know, from two of the investment houses, which was going to handle the sale of Hughes Tool Company. And he appeared to be very rational with them as well. Two of the, one of the most unusual, you know, one of, the, one of the few meetings with the outside world he had in the last 15 years of his life. So somehow he knew he had to do that in those cases. Now, is this a case where when you've got that much money and everybody just says, yes, sir, you can behave any way you want? Uh, it's still kind of remarkable to me that he could deep could dig down and appear to be normal in the midst of it, that much abnormal behavior. Do you have a favorite music artist? Did he? Did you? You. Do you yeah, do you have a favorite music artist? Oh, I like a wide range of music and uh, Beatles. Most of, most of it's classic, but uh, all right. If you can go see a concert of Beethoven, for instance, you had the you have so you have a, let's say you have a set routine, a set schedule. Every day you like doing this routine. Every day you do this. But then Beethoven's in town. He's back from the dead. Whatever you want to say, and you got tickets to it. You're gonna break that routine and schedule, and you're gonna put yourself together, even though you might like coming home and slipping off the slippers. I think his richness, Howard Hughes's richness, the fact that he could get anything that he wanted, and people basically would not stop him because he had so much money. Basically, it was do what Howard says. I think that fueled a lot of his derangedness, and he wasn't as far gone as you might like to think. Well, that that's that's a good point, and uh, and 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 I think the point you're making there because you know he's not subject to anybody else's control, and we all we all kind of need somebody in most of our lives. There's somebody else out there that will say no to us on certain. It might be a boss, it might be a spouse, it might be a parent. Carla Peters did, right? right. And Jane Russell. And Jane, right, exactly. But very, but there are very few who end up standing up to him in that sense. So uh, I think, you know, what you also just said there uh, kind of goes to the heart of why he's such an interesting guy and why we, it was a difficult book to write, a difficult bit of research, because you're constantly trying to get to the bottom of something. I mean, that's what you do as an author, as a journalist, as a writer. You try to shed as much light as you can. And a lot of the incidents kind of speak for themselves, but people very often have different interpretations is what they mean. I mean, I think that's the value really of a, of a, of a big biography. Uh, I've had people make different 
interpretations for some of the things that I wrote about that I didn't even interpret. I just related the facts. I might have my own theory of what it meant. But that's okay, because you're talking about a complex man here in a complex situation. And people will read this in different kinds of ways. I think that's the richness of Howard. Uh, even in death, he's sort of unpredictable in terms of the way you add up what it all means. Uh, and that's why he's so intriguing. Can I ask about his move to Vegas and when he started acquiring a lot of Las Vegas property? He, but uh, he, the move to Vegas was an outgrowth of. Uh, he's went through several major crises in his life, uh, all revolving around his business, aviation, or activities. And in the war, as we talked about earlier, uh, the Hercules Spruce Goose and the XF-11, these government contracts that he actually built the planes but had not been able to fulfill them on time for various reasons. Still pretty amazing things that he did, uh, causing his first mental breakdown. Uh, the second major aviation crisis in his life was TWA, Trans World Airlines. He absolutely loved TWA, but he was never, he was 75% owner of it, so he controlled it. But there were always minority stockholders. <clears throat> and they eventually sued him over alleging mismanagement of the airline. He had been kind of late in ordering jet planes for TWA. That was a, a tremendous amount of stress on him that really provoked as much as anything kind of a second mental breakdown around 5960. Anyway, so he's kind of wanders all over the place in the early 60s. Um, he's living in California, then he's, uh, I think there's one stint in the Bahamas there. Um, on down the line, finally, the idea of Vegas hits him. He already owned a lot of property in Vegas. He'd uh, spent a lot of time there in the early 50s, and he'd bought a lot of land. So he knew Vegas. And he's kind of a, he knows the value of entertainment. He knows what things are going to be. And he was enticed by the idea that Vegas at the time had been uh, seen by so many people as this den of corruption by the mob, various organized crime interests around the country. So here was a case where Hughes could move in and buy these things and help clean up Vegas. So Vegas was itself was very delighted by this prospect and did everything they could to encourage him to come in. And he was revitalized by this, uh, even though he was totally reclusive at the time. Uh, this is 1965, 66. Uh, he takes up uh, headquarters on top of the Desert Inn and just the whole floor and so forth. And from there, he buys the TV stations, uh, develops good relationships with the, with the newspapers there, not, not directly, but through his minions, and begins buying the casinos uh, and seeing all the, the potential. Bob Mayhew, you mentioned earlier, uh, the fellow who had worked for the CIA, becomes basically his lieutenant in charge of Vegas for him, uh, taking care of the politicians, both statewide and nationally. Uh, doing the regulatory things you have to do to have a casino license and so forth. Uh, normally, in most of those cases, if it's a casino license, the person that owns the thing really has to appear. 
Howard wasn't going to appear before the Casino Control Board in Nevada. So all of these things were taken care of. Uh, but it revitalized him. I mean, the idea of acquiring these things. And he got a lot of tremendously favorable publicity uh, out of the gate for doing these things. Uh, so that was a tremendous um, plus for him. What started eroding it, though, was uh, the old guard. He was his old guard based in L.A., uh, working out of operations, the operations center. Uh, became very, very uh, at odds with Mayhew. And there's all there's been a lot of stories over the years about, I think in general, the last 10 to 15 years of Hughes' life, a lot of money was funneled out of the empire from a, a whole range of different sources because nobody was really watching. And so, but they were very jealous of the control that Mayhew had over Hughes in Vegas, which was now his center of activity. They were losing control. So there was a lot of infighting that led to uh, Hughes eventually firing Mayhew. And then uh, after he fired Mayhew, then the whole Clifford Irving false biography memoir came out. And in the course of that uh, phone conversation we talked about earlier, where uh, uh, Hughes said he never spoke to Clifford Irving, didn't know the man, this is all phony. That's the one where he makes the comment about Robert Mayhew, that he stole me blind or something like that, which then led to Mayhew filing his lawsuit against Hughes. So the, the whole period is just embroiled in all of this litigation during this time. Uh, and then from 72 on, Hughes then just becomes a citizen of the kind of the world. He's going to Vancouver. He's going to London. He's going to the Bahamas. He's going to Mexico. Uh, not staying in any one of these places very long with a whole retinue coming with him, including a doctor in some cases. So, uh, but Vegas revitalized him for a short time and was actually one of the good periods, even of his reclusiveness. He was, he was much more... Go ahead, sorry. I'm about to say, can I ask about the Watergate stuff? The Nixon loan and all that? I don't think that that's what the whole missing tape stuff was about, the Howard Hughes stuff. I don't think that... I had Jeff Shepard who defended Nixon at Watergate. So he was part of Nixon's legal staff during that whole Watergate scenario. He doesn't believe it either, but there is definitely... Howard Hughes wanted political influence. You know, he's a billionaire. He obviously you want to find some way to get the higher ups, at least a good graces so you can be able to maybe do things that you'd like to be able to do or build something you'd like to be able to build, which, you know, Howard had a lot of projects. Um, but the Hughes loan, I mean, he also donated to Kennedy's campaign as well, too. I think he thought of it as both horses are racing. Let me just see which one. You know, if I bet on both, at least I won't be a loser. Right. right. Well, that, and that's uh, kind of the standard uh, format for corporate America. If you look at, and just to digress a minute, if you look at um, campaign contributions in Congress, while most corporate executives and corporate PACs are, I would say, lean Republican without a doubt, uh, the contributions are almost half right down the middle. I mean, for, for that same reason, you want to make sure you got an insurance policy, depending on who gets in power and so forth. So they did that. And and Howard was always aware of the political ramifications of things. I mean, the, back in Nixon's first campaign, 
uh, he provides the loan to his brother, Donald Nixon. So he was had this connection to the to the for the Nixon burger. You can't forget the Nixon, that. The Nixon burger for all, that's for fantastic. All. That's the best story I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> we had all of these, you know, things that he was going to help these. Uh, and it's funny how all of these presidents seem to have some relative here or there that. Uh, or all famous people sometimes have this relative here or there is not quite up to snuff with the rest of the family. And so it was with Richard Nixon's brother, Donald. But so there were these connections going way back. Uh, but I, and, you know, who knows in terms of that connection, but we didn't find it in, in our look. You know, that was not the reason for the Watergate break-in. I think it was these other concerns they had. Uh, but there's no doubt uh, Hughes was intimately involved in making these political contributions, both above board and not so above board, because he had regulatory issues with things like the Civil Aeronautics Board, which doesn't exist anymore. He bought a little airline out in California, expanded it greatly. That's the kind of thing you needed to have access in Washington. Uh, he'd always had to have tremendous, even though he'd was not in day-to-day -day control of Hughes Aircraft Company. His name was on that company. So you had, and Hughes Aircraft Company's whole survival was based on government contracts. So he had huge reasons to have that Washington presence, the constantly lineup of people who were known, who might, un half the time it was just a retainer, just somebody on standby, if you had to um, call him into play to do something for you, he would. So for a guy who was a recluse, he certainly understood how the system worked very, very well. When it comes to Howard Hughes, when his death happens, I mean, there's been theories out there that believe that he's still alive somewhere. And I, I think it's with Howard Hughes, you hear more stories after his death about things that he did or things that he was involved in. And it gets to a really big question for you, which is the Mormon will as well too so it's kind of a two-parter question but do you believe the melvin dumar story it's it's so i i know he came out and said it's not true but it's like damn that is a huge thing to do if that was going to be a huge thing there's several reasons uh we did not think that that was true well one is um the idea that hughes would leave his penthouse under those circumstances that alone just is impossible to us and this is based on the way you've seen him behaving over a period of time. He's just scared to death, frankly, by that point in his life to have anything around him that he can't immediately control. So that's the first thing. And uh, there are other things in the will in terms of some of the things that he's going to give and so forth. It make no sense. The other pattern that you see uh we trace every will that he did or did not engage in from really the 20s on. He did execute some wills in the 20s and 30s. He changed like every 72 hours or some crap, if I'm he, not mistaken. He he did change from, uh, uh, in, in cases, some. I still got a right mind, so he's ahead of me at least. <laughs> but by the 50s, there's this famous uh, scene where... Uh, you know, he's starting to have some trouble. And the what I call the Romaine Street group, West Hollywood, that ran Operations Center, were very concerned about 
what would happen to everything if he died, or even if he became somehow major incapacitated. So he agreed that he should have a will. And uh, there's a long section on this in our book. Uh, it was drawn up, and a certain amount was going to go to uh, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which had already been founded by then. Uh, and they were going to have a signing ceremony. I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And everybody shows up with him, and he, he won't sign. He won't sign. And that was the last incident anybody knew where he actually where he was confronted with the notion of a will, but did not execute. And he played off one lawyer against another, like, oh, I have a will, or you're in my will, and, and AIDS as well. So one person would be over here and said, well, maybe such and such does know about it, but he can't talk to me about it because it's attorney-client <laughs> privilege. Yeah. So Howard was a genius at playing off people like that. So we postulated that he viewed signing his will as kind of a death warrant for himself, and uh, which is not an uncommon thing among a certain number of people. Or he would eventually get around to it. But as he deteriorated late in life, he was not even able to totally come to grips with that. So that's why we postulated he died without a will. A will was never found. The Dumar will was pretty much discredited early on just because of some mistakes in it and and just the impossibility of that it's a it's a wonderful story and of course it's a fun movie right but in our in our mind um it did not happen this is a weird question for you but how much based on our information that we know now and all this hindsight that we can have based on all the research we have done into mental illness how much of his impulse spending, how much of his drug addiction, how much of his laissez-faire lifestyle can now be attributed to the fact that he had so many prevailing medical conditions going on with him. He constantly hurt, you know, I mean, the drug addiction stuff, you can just look, I mean, I, this is where I said, I've changed my perspective on Howard Hughes from the first time I learned about him. You know, he's an eccentric, he was addicted to oxys, all these things are flashy. But when you get down to the man who suffered a severe plane accident and had a lot of pain that he was struggling with, and then also mental illness on top of that, your perspective changed. And my heart goes out to the man. I mean, I think you can get stuck in it. I agree with you. And, you know, and, you know, and we made this point really at the end of the book. I mean, that it's it's so sad that there really wasn't somebody in those last few years who could really have come forward and, and helped him in some way or another to restrict some of the drug usage, to get him some other kinds of counseling on this or that or the other thing, something that would just take him out of this zone he'd built for himself, this bubble that was very destructive to his to his own interests. He thought. He was taking care of himself, but he really wasn't. He was actually pushing himself further down this road to destruction. Um, and I think the point you're making about meds and all that is really a very valid one because he came out of that crash. He was addicted to codeine. Uh, they never tried to slowly ease him off that. Codeine addiction is also, beyond just the drugs themselves, and the side effects of codeine addiction are quite horrendous. And... Uh, you know, that caused some further debilitating uh, aspects of his life. So 
the end result is, you know, we all need somebody in this world. And he had nobody. He had all the money in the world, but nobody's really truly looking after him. They're just providing what he needs, which may not be in his best interest. Nobody's standing up to look after this man. And the sad tragedy of that is that's kind of the bed Howard made for himself. He sort of cut himself off from family and close friends uh, early on in his life. One of the most um, moving things that really struck me during the research on the book was I, I interviewed his boyhood friend, a fellow named Dudley Sharp. And Dudley's father and Howard's father had together had the Sharp Hughes Tool Company, the drill bit. But uh, Dudley's father died young and Howard took over the entire company. But Dudley and Howard were boyhood friends. Though after they both got to college level, they didn't see each other much at all. But after his round-the-world flight, where he's on top of the world, yeah, Howard's on top of the world, he calls Dudley at this time just to talk to him. And he said, I've messed up my life terribly. And yet, in the world at the time, you think, he's on top of the world. But in Howard's own mind, he was some things were already happening to him that he was not happy about. Whether it was the failure, he didn't have family, he didn't have friends, how he was cutting off people, or whatever it was. He was feeling very sorry for himself and, and concerned about where he was at. I've never forgotten that, because uh, Dudley was a really, really uh, classy guy in every way. And who was a success in his own business um, and liked his friendship with Howard. But he was so struck by the phone conversation. And that was the last time, and that was 38, the last time um, he ever spoke to Howard. He never never called again, never reached him after that. So it we all it's it's kind of trite to say this, but we all do need somebody. And toward the end of his life, he really had nobody. And he paid a he really paid a price for that. What would you say the moral of the story is for Howard Hughes when you talk about, like, if you're going to interest someone into it, but also explain how you can examine his life and really see, like, for me, it's just, you can have all the money in the world and still experience pain. You know, that's something you can see throughout Howard's life. It's just nothing but pain, even though you had money to spend it all away and do whatever you wanted to. I mean, yeah, it makes the objects around you nicer, but does it make you happier as a person? I don't think I could say it any better than you just said it. I mean, I think that's in some ways the story of his life. Uh, the pluses are he put a lot of that money to use in ways that we can, we're very positive. I mean, his aviation uh, records were, <coughs> excuse me, his aviation triumphs and the technology in those planes, very significant and very impressive. Uh, Hughes Aircraft Company, which didn't build aircrafts most of its time, it was in the satellites and other high level technology, was an incredibly important thing that he created. He didn't run it per se from the 1950s on, but he used it as a symbol of what technology could do. And some of the very best engineers went to work for that and then pushed the boundaries of space and everything else for a long time. So he did a lot of positive things. But in terms of his own life, um, it seems to be from one really painful experience after another. 
starting with the death of his parents, uh, uh, his triumphs certainly in, in movies and aviation were short-lived because he's having all kinds of personal problems at that point. Then there's the pain of the World War II. He takes on this mammoth project that nobody could have achieved and brought to, brought to, to fruition with the big planes, the fighter planes. Um, then he lips, laps back into movies, but they turn out to be painful because he can't really control them the way he used to. He has a little uplift in, the, in Vegas, but once again, the health is catching up with him. And he's in more and more, not just mental pain, but physical pain, more and more of that. So you're right, it's really a life of pain, one way or another, uh, that all the money in the world can't really assuage. So uh, in, in the bottom line with him, though, is a, the, he is such a fascinating character, uh, both this triumphant, amazing young life, this ultimately sad decline at the end. Uh, but what has always stood out for me is what a lonely man he really was. He was very close to his mother. He revered his father. But after that, he seems to have cut off the world in the way normal human relations would develop. And uh, as a result of that, he goes through life very isolated, one triumph after another. But I wonder in his own mind, he just viewed all of those as hollow. But whatever you, whatever you think on that, the facts of the life are so interesting. They lend themselves to about 15 different storylines because it's so complicated, it's so interesting, it's so demanding from uh, what he wanted to do, what he wanted to achieve, and how he was limited in doing those things. So uh, that's why the life, I think, will always remain uh, a subject of great fascination uh, to every generation. Well, Mr. Steele, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? And I'll make sure I link them in the description below as well, too. Surely. Uh, I have a website. It's it's called Barlett, B-A-R-L-E-T-T, -T, and Steele. One word, Barlett and Steele. Uh, or they can just look up me, James B. Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. -E. <laughs> and uh, on the Wikipedia, and that also has references to the website as well. So. Either one can point the way to the book, and um, and I'm I'm actually very proud that this book has stayed in print since 1979 because it's this cradle to grave view of this one of the unique individuals I think in American history. Now it's a it's, you have a wealth of knowledge on Howard Hughes, and I'm happy to be able to share this experience with you because I'm learning, trying to catch up, but I'm glad I could try and hold my conversation a little bit with you and at least ask some important, what I think important questions for any new generation out there that should be, I mean, if you haven't come across me yet, please just Google Howard Hughes. Uh, but thank you again, Mr. Steele, for giving me the time. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.